So we come to the last chapter of Nehemiah today, which doesn't seem possible. I, how long ago does Ezra seem to you? It seemed like a long time ago. Esther. What? What? What do you? What do you? I think my mic's on. I can hear it. Okay. <laughs> yes, my mic is on to answer your question. So we left Romans and went into Ezra. So now let's try to frame it that way. How long ago does that seem? It seems like a while for me. Even the Esther of the the Purim thing seems like a little while ago to me. So we find ourselves in Nehemiah 13 today. I, I didn't count the, the time or the messages as far as how long it's taken us. <clears throat> but here we are today. But before we get into Ezra 13, or Nehemiah 13, I want our public reading this morning to be back in chapter 10. And I'm doing that because I want to remind you of the covenant that these people made in the time of Nehemiah after the walls were rebuilt. And if you'll remember, 52 days to rebuild the walls. Then a month later, they dedicated the walls and they made a covenant with God of what they would do, what they wouldn't do. And it was a solemn binding agreement and it was a big public assembly. And I'm going to remind you of what they said in that covenant today because we're going to find out exactly how they kept it or didn't keep it. And have you ever read a, a book or watched a movie and you got near the end and you're like, man, this is just fantastic, and then they ruin it with an ending? Yeah. That's kind of what we're going to see today. I'm just going to shoot you straight. Um, we're, we're going to see an ending that makes us go, what? <laughs> Anybody see Stand By Me? The only movie Stand By Me? That's my all-time worst ending ever. If you haven't seen it, I won't tell you what it is. But, yeah. Anyway, somebody gets stabbed in the neck. That's one thing, just so you know. <clears throat> but I, I won't tell you who it was. <laughs> stabbed in the neck. Anywho, if you would, stand with us. <clears throat> I will be stabbing no one in the neck this morning, to the best of my knowledge. Um. <clears throat> But again, what we're looking at is Nehemiah 10, verses 28 through 39. And this is the covenant that, they, that the, the, the Jews publicly made with God, with each other, that they would uphold. And we'll see in here that they even say, to the extent that if we don't keep it, we'll be cursed. <clears throat> so, Nehemiah 10, 28 through 39, the very words of God say this. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. This is what they say. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. 
for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let me pray. God, you know what we need today. And your word provides for us food, sustenance, so that we might know you and be nourished in you. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would speak and be heard through your word. And that we would be changed, that we would be challenged. God, if there's someone here who does not know you, that they would be convicted of their sins and be drawn to know Jesus as their Savior. Give us what we need. We trust you as a good Father. And we trust you, Holy Spirit, to show us Jesus today. We ask for it and expect it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So chapter 10 here was from a few weeks ago. Um, We did 11 and 12 last week where we're looking at all those lists of names and who did what and what they would do as a result of this covenant. So this covenant in chapter 10 is of ultimate importance in everything that we've looked at in Nehemiah. Everything. Again, the walls were not the end. We were looking for, what did we say last week? We're looking for worship in Jerusalem. And what the people are saying here in this covenant is, this is how we will worship. Individually, as families, as a corporate group of people, this is how we will worship. This is what we will do to worship our God in Jerusalem where He should be worshipped. And they were very specific. This is, and everybody had a part to play. And they talked about what they would do to provide for the temple service. They talked about not giving their sons or daughters to foreigners for marriage. They talked about keeping the Sabbath holy. And they talked about everybody's responsibility. And then they finish it, they punctuate it with what is really the last sentence of this covenant, which is like an exclamation point, We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, Let's drive this home a little bit. How many of you have left here on a Sunday and said, I will never do this thing again? I will do better this week. I will read my Bible this week. I will, I will, I will, or I won't, I won't, I won't. I will not neglect the house of my God. And about Tuesday, 
eh, it's not so fresh anymore, right? Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever make a New Year's resolution and get like two or three weeks in and be like, bah, eh, today I can't, but I'll be fine tomorrow. Eh, yeah. I would say this, we're really going to see the Israelites fail today. And I would ask you to not be too hard on them. Because they are us. And we are them. And that's not bad news. That's what I would encourage you with today. So, now, let's jump to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to break this apart section by section. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 first. On that day... They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. All right. Yes. Good. Good first three verses, right? Let me explain it a little bit, okay? First of all, there's some time issues here. Here it says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Now just as a quick jump ahead, verse 4 says, Now before this. And then in verse 6, it says, While this was taking place, Nehemiah says, I was not in Jerusalem. So let's go back to verse 3. Now it's important to note those three time references so that we can place what's going on. It's a little bit difficult to put them in, in a way that is clear. And there's a lot of dis, uh, disagreement amongst the commentators about what means what here. So I, I just want to point this out so that you'll know what perspective I'm working from. And this is what I would want you to hear me say up front about this time stuff, okay? It's not terribly important. And you don't hear me say that much, right? Usually I'm like, you need to note the time references and it's important to note. Now, this it's not terribly important that we get this perfect. Let me tell you why. Okay. There are times in biblical interpretation where we're just not 100% clear. That's going to happen. It, it's always going to happen. That's, just, that's wrong. It's not always going to happen. There will be times when it surely does happen. So here, when we've got these three time references, when we're trying to figure out what's going on and when, our interpretation of the time does not affect the message. Okay, It doesn't affect the overall point of the message. So if these are things, you've got primary things, secondary things, tertiary things, and things out there that just are just basically personal preferences. This is not of primary importance, this time frame thing. And we have to be able to discern what is of primary importance, what is secondary, what is tertiary, and what's out there floating in our personal preferences. So that we don't disagree unnecessarily with other Christians who may not agree with us. You may not agree with my time interpretation thing this morning. That's fine. We're going to go back there and we're going to sit down and I'll even let you eat some of my rigatoni that I made. I won't be mad at you at all. It's really good. And David Mellick broke the refrigerator this morning. That's just to take the heat off me there, okay? <laughs> you knew that was coming up, right? I mean, you knew it was coming somewhere. I'll explain that later too. Actually, I'll let him explain it because I don't care. So, specifics sometimes when we're interpreting the Bible are hard to nail down. 
and you may read differing opinions about what it means. Make sure that it's not of primary importance and you can say, okay, this is not... I want to know and I want to dig and get my fingernails dirty and try to figure out. But if I disagree with somebody, it's not important. This is not of primary importance. That's all I want to say about that. Like, then shut up. Okay, I will. I'll stop talking about it. It's not terribly important. It doesn't affect anything major as far as what the passage means. Um, So that's just a quick point there. Now, normally, I'd say that the chapter and verse markings are not in the original text. And that that would indicate to me that what we see in 13.1 is directly related to the end of chapter 12. That would make sense, right? But... And some people say that, but that's complicated by the fact that verse 4 says before this. Okay? And then verse 6 tells us of something taking place that took place while Nehemiah was gone. Now, was Nehemiah present in chapter 12? Yes, he was. He was leading one of the choirs on one of the sides of the walls, remember? So he was there in chapter 12. Okay? So, let's put this puzzle together. So, verse 6 says, we, we know that Nehemiah was in service. He was leaving. So, he was gone in the now before this that took place in verse 1. Okay? Which was mentioned in verse 4. So, what we just read in verses 1 through 3 happened. Verse 4 happened before 1 through 3. Okay, you with me? And Nehemiah explains that he was gone in verse 6. So, in this verse 1, this on that day, would have to be a different time than immediately following the end of chapter 12. Are you with me? Because this happened, and then something happened before that, and that thing that happened before that, Nehemiah was gone in. So this had to happen after Nehemiah was gone, is all I'm saying. And that couldn't be chapter 12 because Nehemiah was there in chapter 12. So this reading that we see in verses 1 through 3 was not immediately the next thing after the end of chapter 12. There's some time that has passed. And we have to establish that. And that's all I would want to establish with that little rant there. So this is in the future sometime after the close of chapter 12. So when it says in verse 1, on that day, this is a different day than the day that they dedicated the walls and all that stuff. Okay? That's all I wanted to say there. And I took six minutes to say it. Sorry about that. So, on that day in the future, sometime, past chapter 12, there's an assembly where they hear from the law, the law of God, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Why? For they, the Ammonites and Moabites, did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. So that account that they're talking about the Moabites and the Ammonites not meeting the Israelites, that happens in Numbers 22, where it talks about Balaam and all that. And we're not going to go there this morning. You can look at that if you want to on your own. But the command from God to to not allow Ammonites or Moabites into the assembly of the Lord, which means into Israel at all, that command is found in Deuteronomy 23, 3-6, which I'm going to read. I don't have in here. I didn't put it in here. Here's the command that they're referencing here. Deuteronomy 23, 3-6. God says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, 
because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Peor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their, their being the Ammonites or Moabites, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So that's what's being referenced here in verses 1 through 3. So the Israelites were in the midst of the Exodus. They're leaving Egypt and they come to the land of Ammon and Moab. Anybody familiar with who Ammon and Moab were? Lot's sons. Lot was Abraham's nephew. He was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. The angel came and said, you've got to get out of here. We're about to destroy this place. Him and his wife and his daughters leave. His wife looks back, turns into a pillar of salt. Him and his daughters are up in the mountains living. And here we go, let's get a little gross. They're afraid they're not going to have any descendants. So they get their dad drunk and they get pregnant by their dad. That's Ammon and Moab. That's the sons that they had. All righty then. I didn't stab you in the neck, but there you go. (laughs) The good news is that's not the end. So, the Ammonites and the Moabites are close relatives of the Israelites. Abraham, Lot, Israel, Ammon, Moab. Okay? So being close relatives, when Israel come up to these lands in their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, they thought, hey, our kinfolk will help us. That's what kinfolk do, right? They help you. But instead, they met resistance. And so God said, in order to punish the nations of Ammon and Moab, that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly, even if there was a trace of their heritage in someone down to ten generations removed. Now, if an Ammonite or Moabite proselytized or became Jewish, they could be in the assembly. Anybody know a Moabite that became Jewish? You're like, I don't know any Moabites. Ruth, absolutely. Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth was a Moabite. But she became fully Jewish. She proselytized, became a Jew in life, in an action, and she was an ancestor of David and an ancestor of Jesus. So proselytized Ammonites or Moabites could be in the assembly. If you don't become fully a Jew, you're not allowed in the assembly. That's God's law. Down to ten generations, he said. So what's being referenced in Nehemiah was the Israelites allowing Ammonites and Moabites into their midst as they were. And in this reading of the law that happened on this day, sometime past chapter 12, it says, don't let them in the assembly. Now stop a second. This has nothing to do with racism. The Jews were not racist. I guess some of them were. God was not commanding racism. He was saying, don't let them in because they've done what they've done. And this was about religious purity, pure worship. And if anybody uses these types of scriptures to advocate racism, that's of primary importance, y'all. And we disagree with them and we contest with them and say, you're twisting the scriptures. Curse you. Should we say that? We'll talk about that later. So they separated from Israel all of foreign descent. They told them that they could not be there as per the law. 
So we see in them here, these Israelites, again, immediate, hard, costly obedience. This is telling people, you can't be here. Now, could you imagine me looking at somebody and say, hey, you, you can't be here this morning. That's what was going on. Alistair Begg talked about when he was growing up, he was friends with a lot of Jewish people. A lot of his friends were Jewish. And he said, at 3 o'clock Friday afternoon, you left their house. You weren't allowed to be there because they were starting their Sabbath. And you were not allowed to be there because you were not Jewish. He said, we played up until 3, but at 3 o'clock I went home. And it was understood because that's what they did. Telling people to leave. People you share life and common interests with. Maybe even business dealings with. People you have relationships with. And they're saying, sorry, you've got to go. You can't be here. So they're being obedient to the word, right? This is, all right, momentum is positive. Well, yeah. Well, let's read verses 4 and 5. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, uh-oh, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. So here we see before this, the one that we referenced back in the previous verses. So what happened, what had happened before verses 1 through 3? Eliashib, who was a priest, a descendant of Aaron was over the chambers of the house of God. Now we saw that they had agreed to bring the, the, the provisions for the priests and the Levites into these chambers. And this guy Eliashib was over the chambers. He oversaw what was coming in to provide for the temple worship and offerings and provisions. He determined what was stored where. Well, it turns out that he's related to Tobiah. You know Tobiah, right? Skippy and Toby, the bad guys. This is the Toby of Skippy and Toby. The one who would come up to the wall and said, if a fox jumps on it, it'll fall down. The one who opposed them to their face. That, Tobiah. Eliashib was related to Tobiah. That don't sound right. Well, you can't help who your family is, right? But he wasn't just related to him. He had prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they used to store the grain offering and other things for the priests. Tobiah was living in the temple. Tobiah was living in the temple. And Eliashib set it up. One of the priests. Eliashib made it happen. And you're like, no way. And we're like, way. God says, yeah. Where the stuff to provide for the priests and Levites and singers should have been, the enemy of the wall project, the enemy of the people of God was living it up. And if he's living in this large chamber, guess what ain't there? Provisions for the priests and the Levites and the singers. And that's a problem, right? Since this is what the people said they would be doing on a consistent basis... We won't neglect the house of our God. We're going to provide for the temple. We're going to provide for the priests and the Levites and the singers. That's what we're going to do. We will not neglect the house of our God. Right? But that didn't happen. Well, why not? Maybe the next few verses give us an answer. Verses 4 through 9. 
6 through 9, sorry. While this was taking place, I, who's I? Nehemiah. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. (laughs) Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Not frankenberry, frankincense. So it turns out that Nehemiah had left to go back to report to King Artaxerxes. Remember way back at the beginning, he asked the king leave, and the king said, when will you be coming back? Obviously, he told him 12 years. Because... We see that at the beginning that it was the 20th year of King Artaxerxes and here it says the 32nd year of the king. So he had been in Jerusalem 12 years and then he went back to Susa to report to the king. Now how long he was gone, we don't know. That's time references we don't have. Okay? We don't have how long he was gone, but we know that he was in Jerusalem 12 years before he went back to the king. So, when he gets back, Things have done gone crazy. Things are running amok. I mean, Tobiah is living in the temple. But Nehemiah asks for leave from the king again and comes back to Jerusalem to see all this craziness going on. And he finds out what Eliashib had done for Tobiah. And what does he say? What does he say that this is that Eliashib had done? Go back here. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. He calls it evil. It's evil. And he calls it evil. So what do we do when evil is present? What did Nehemiah do? Verse 8 says, he got angry. And in his anger... He threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Now let me ask you something. How does that make you feel? Is that like, cool? Or is it like, what? Anybody know who Howie Long is? He used to play for the Raiders. He was a defensive end. Fierce competitor. They said when the Raiders would lose, he would go home and throw all of his furniture outside. Sounds pretty stupid, doesn't it? Does it sound stupid when Nehemiah does it? Now you're saying, well, he didn't lose a football game. And it wasn't his furniture either, that's true. Is this all right? It ain't supposed to be in there, but hold on a second. What's in here this morning? What's in your heart? What sins have you committed this week that you hope we don't find out about? That you hope somebody doesn't confront you about? What if they tell you to throw that out? Is that all right? Nehemiah comes in and Tobiah's stuff is in the temple and he gets mad and he throws it out. There are some people who say that he acted out of anger and that that was wrong. And there's no indication here in the text that he was wrong. 
He was righteously angry and he acted drastically to do away with the evil in his presence. There's a guy named Jesus one time that walked into the temple and there was some stuff going on that shouldn't have been going on. Was he like, you guys, you shouldn't do this. No. Jesus got mad. And Jesus turned over tables. We'll read that in a little bit in application. So Nehemiah started tossing stuff out, kind of like before Jesus ever did that. And then he gave orders to have the chamber cleansed because it had been defiled by Tobiah's presence. Because he was Tobiah's a Jewish name, by the way, but he's a foreigner. And then they brought back the vessels that should have been in there along with the provisions that should have been in there too. Get rid of the evil, put the good back in. That's good righteous action. So we're good, right? Well, unfortunately... New, we're not good. Verses 10 through 14. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses... Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So we've seen Tobiah living in the temple. Now we see why there was room for him. No provisions were being brought for the Levites and singers and being housed there. So these temple workers had packed up and headed back to their homes and fields outside of town. No provisions means no provisions. They had nothing to live on, so they had to make do for themselves, and they couldn't do that in the city. They went each to his field. So what would Nehemiah do? He confronted the officials and asked, Why is the house of God forsaken? It's pretty straightforward, right? Again, the last thing the people of God had said in their committing to the covenant was, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so what was going on here? They were neglecting the house of God. So Nehemiah set the people right, and he set the right people over the correct stations. And when people were in place, it says, all Judah brought the correct provisions to the storerooms. Let me say this real quick. When the right people are in the right place doing the right things, good things tend to happen. So Nehemiah also appointed men whom he called reliable as treasurers over the storehouses and made sure they distributed things that were needed to the people that needed them. And now look how this particular part of the passage ends. Verse 14, Nehemiah prays and asks God to remember him concerning this and asks that God not wipe out his good deeds that he has done for the house of God and for his service. So what's he asking? He's asking God to keep a record. And he's asking God to reward him for his good deeds. Nehemiah's going to God. He's saying, God, I want you to take note of what I'm doing. And I want you to remember it. Because I'm doing good things. He expects God to bless him for the work that he's doing. Hmm. Maybe something to that. Let's press on. 15 through... 18. 
In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself! Exclamation point. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath." So as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. So one of the things that they said that they were going to do was they were going to keep the Sabbath, right? Now, Nehemiah sees that the Sabbath is being profaned by Jews and non-Jews. The Jews were treading wine presses and loading donkeys and bringing goods into Jerusalem and selling food on the Sabbath. He also mentions Tyrians, people from Tyre. Anybody tired this morning? You're a Tyrian. Yeah, right. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem, they were bringing in fish and other goods and selling them to the Jews of Jerusalem on the Sabbath as well. So what does Nehemiah do? He confronts the nobles of Judah and asks them why they are doing this evil by profaning the Sabbath. So you get this picture of Nehemiah and he's going around and saying, Why are you doing what you're doing? Why aren't you doing what you should be doing? He's going to people, he's looking them in the eye and he's saying, You are not acting correctly. You're not doing what you said you would do and you're doing what you said you wouldn't do. Direct confrontation. Eye to eye, nose to nose. So he confronts them, why are you doing this evil by profaning the Sabbath? And he reminds them that their fathers did similar things and that when they neglected the Sabbath, that brought the wrath of God onto them. We talked about that before. So if God acted in wrath before, what do you think He's going to do now? He's going to act in wrath because they're being disobedient specifically about the Sabbath. So I just love Nehemiah's willingness to confront and lay out an airtight case about what's being done. And it don't take much. Why are you doing what you're doing? That's the airtight case. You can't neglect it. You can't avoid it. Yep, I'm doing it. Why? I've told y'all before I had a boss that used to ask that. Why did you do that? Um, we were busy. Why? Uh, there was a lot of people in here. Why? Uh, they needed car parts, sir. Why? Uh, their cars were broken down. Why? I don't know. And he would, why you, until you said, I don't know. And then he would say, fix that problem. Okay, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know why the panda showed up. I don't, I don't know. I'll, I'll work on that, sir. No pandas. So Nehemiah just confronts them and he says, why are you doing this? And they didn't have an answer. And then he made it right. Fix it. And he put people in place who could make it right. So how does this confrontation work out? I read too much before. Let's read 19 through 22 here. As soon as, I, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. 
But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I don't think he's praying for them, by the way. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So Nehemiah commands that the doors be shut and not open till after the Sabbath. And he stationed people to watch and make sure no load be brought in on the Sabbath. Well, those who had previously peddled their goods came to Jerusalem and they found the gates closed. So they lodged outside the city, assuming that they would get in at some point. But Nehemiah says, hey guys from the wall, hey guys, why are you lodging out there? If you do it again, I will lay hands on you. Now that could be taken a couple of different ways. Either he was talking legally, he would have them arrested, or he was saying, we're going to throw hands, y'all. He was threatening to beat them. I don't think he was threatening to arrest them. He was threatening to beat them. We're going to fight if y'all come back here again. He was going to get physical with them. He was going to get rough with them. It was one of those get on out of here type of things, right? Get off my lawn, you rotten kids. Or I'll beat on you. Was it effective? Absolutely. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Well, good for them, right? And then Nehemiah commanded that Levites should purify themselves and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. You're saying, well, isn't he making them work on the Sabbath? He sure is. And it's to preserve worship. We work when we have to to preserve worship on the Sabbath. And he prays again that God will reward him for this and spare him according to the greatness of God's steadfast love. Sounds like Nehemiah's expecting God to pour out some wrath on his people, doesn't it? And he wants spared. I like him more and more, by the way. So are we done? Nope, unfortunately not. 23 through 27. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. You have got to be kidding me, right? And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin." Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? It's like Nehemiah is just boiling now. He's just walking around seeing all this stuff. Sometimes I come home at night and every light in the house is on. I walk in the kitchen and I turn that light off. Everybody's in one room, by the way. They're all in the living room. I turn the first light off. I go into the half bath downstairs and I turn that light off. I go into the dining room and I turn that light off. I go down into the laundry room and I turn that light off. By the time I get upstairs, I'm getting... It's kind of what's going on here with Nehemiah. Kind of. He wants to stab somebody in the neck, but he doesn't. 
<laughs> Nehemiah now sees Jews who had married foreign wives from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Looks like that hanging out with the Moabites and Ammonites was a bad thing, right? They weren't just hanging out. They were intermarrying again. Again. And half the kids from these marriages couldn't even speak the language of Judah. They spoke the language of Ashdod. Now let me ask you a question. You reckon they had an Ashdod translation of the law of God? No. You think they had an Ashdodian translator when they're reading the law publicly? No, they didn't. And if these kids couldn't read the language of God's people, they couldn't know God which is the very danger of intermarriage. You say, well, that's not going to affect my faith if I marry an unbeliever. What about your kids? And first of all, it is going to affect you if you marry an unbeliever. What about your kids? You ain't taking my kids to church. You ever heard that, Bob? And it was happening in Jerusalem before Nehemiah's very eyes. So how did he take it? Verses 25 through 27 again. (laughs) And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. It's funny the second time too, isn't it? And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And so, yes, you read that right, you heard it right. He confronted them, he cursed them, and he beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Now, we saw Ezra... The scribe, when he saw everything going on, he pulled his own hair out and said that. Nehemiah says, nuh-uh. <laughs> I ain't pulling my hair. I'm pulling their hair. This guy's a wild man. He didn't just roll his eyes and say, oh, you guys. Again, we see direct confrontation to the extent of cursing and beating and pulling out their hair. Have you ever seen somebody's hair get pulled out, by the way? Has anybody seen it? If you've seen somebody get their hair pulled out, raise your hand. I worked at the movie theater. Sometimes people fought at the movie theater. And let me tell you what most girls did when they fought. One hand went to the hair, and the other hand was punching. And I'm telling you what, I saw one girl get her face beat in from one end of that theater to the other, and the whole way there were patches of hair. I'm not kidding. This girl pulled that girl's hair out and beat her face the length of that theater. It's a violent thing. Hair doesn't come out real easy. Right? Any of you pluck your eyebrows? Now imagine somebody coming up and grabbing your hair and pulling it out. They plucked Jesus' beard out. Let me tell you what, it hurts. People that have beards and hold babies usually end up getting a beard. And it hurt. That hurt. Right there, that hurts. Nehemiah starts yanking people's hair out, cursing them and beating them all the while. Why is he so upset? He is upset because of sin. Sin in God's people. 
It's all fun and games until there's sin in the midst of the people of God. Now let me ask you again, is he wrong to do this? Maybe. Maybe he is. But sometimes we just absolutely have to deal harshly with other people's sins. Now I'm not telling you to go grab somebody's hair if they're watching a dirty movie. But I just don't think Nehemiah is on God's bad side for doing this. As a matter of fact, he makes these intermarriers take an oath in the name of God saying they won't do this again. And then he refers to the Word of God to show the example of Solomon as a model of why they shouldn't intermarry. Solomon did it and it caused him to sin and it caused, and if it caused him to sin, it would cause them to sin, unquestioningly. So he uses the failures of God's people in the past to push them to future obedience after cursing them and beating them and pulling out their hair. Almost done. 28 and 29. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. He's probably like, this dude pulls people's hair out. I'm out of here. And then he says, Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So we've already seen Tobiah in the temple, but here we see that the son of the high priest had married Sanballat's daughter. I mean, this is like a joke. It's like if you could draw up everything that shouldn't happen, that's what's happening. The high priest's son has married Sanballat's daughter. (laughs) And what does Nehemiah do? He chases Jehoiada from him. Get out of here, you intermarrying, unfaithful loser. He didn't call him a loser, but he probably called him something worse than that. Get on out of here, is what he said. And again, he appeals to God to remember someone. This time, he asks God to remember them, not him. He asks God to remember them since they had desecrated the, desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. He's calling down a curse on them for this. Was he wrong to do that? No. They had signed a covenant saying, curse us if we don't keep this covenant. So Nehemiah says, fine, curse you. God cursed them for doing this. Now, last two verses. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. So basically, Nehemiah reestablished what had previously been reestablished before he went away to Susa. He cleansed them of everything foreign, established the duties of the priests and Levites, and provided for the wood offerings and for the first fruits. He's getting done what should have been getting done all the time he was gone. And he asked God to remember him for good in light of all that he has done again. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I'm Nehemiah writing my memoirs, Or maybe even if I'm God writing down a book, that's not how I would end this book. And that's it. That's the last verse. I'd have ended it after chapter 12. Because things were firing all cylinders then. Everything was good. I would have rejoiced in that final proclamation of chapter 10, maybe even, where they said, We will not neglect the house of our God. 
and they all lived happily ever after. Amen. I would have ended in triumph and purity, passion and purpose. But instead, in the wisdom and providence of God, the book ends with this. Nehemiah sighing his way through another prayer for God to bless him for his relentless work and trying to keep those Jews in line. We've seen them win. We've seen them lose. We've seen them win. We've seen them lose. We've seen them obey and disobey and obey and disobey time and time again from the time we started Ezra chapter 1 till we get to Nehemiah 13. We've seen them make, break, and reestablish covenants only to break them again. We've seen them zealously rally around God's law only to forget it when circumstances divert their attention for just a brief second. And through it all, we have seen God be God. We have seen God providing for, blessing, protecting, and reaching out to His people. And isn't that true today? For me? For us? So let's wrap it up with some application from Nehemiah 13 specifically. This chapter is about sin. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Good, because I'm not, and I did. This chapter is about sin. We see Israel's sin one last time. And what's significant about this is, this is the end of the Old Testament time frame. Now, in your Bible, you've got Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. But this is the very end of the Old Testament time frame. For the Jews, this is the last book in their Old Testament. In, well, in their Bible, sorry. They don't have an Old Testament. They've got their scriptures. This is the end of the historical account of the Jews before we see Matthew chapter 1, which they don't recognize, the Orthodox Jews. So this is how their history ends. And we'll spend the next few weeks looking at this sin that they're in and God's call to repent of it in Malachi, which was taking place around the time that Nehemiah was in Susa or just a little before. Uh, this is chapter 10, 11, 12 was 444 B.C. Malachi prophesies in 444 B.C. So he's talking to that time frame when they're in this sin. Malachi will be. So we'll see these sins again that we just covered. But for now, let's see their sin in light of our sin and how Nehemiah confronts it in light of how we should confront it. I don't have clever application points, okay? but I've got three points. Okay. First is there is a cycle of sin. Second is there's a need for confrontation. Thirdly, there is a call to keep our eye on our reward. So you can see that in the text, right? Cycle of sin, a need for confrontation, and a call to keep our eye on our reward. So, cycle of sin. Listen to me say this before we dive into this application point. Listen to me. Sin is never okay. It's never all right to sin. God doesn't wink and smile and say, Oh, it's okay. I understand. God hates sin. If you are a Christian, God poured out His wrath upon your sin in the body of Christ. And He punished your sins there. Jesus' body was broken and His blood was poured out because of your sins. And that's not alright. 
So this, oh, well, I'll just go ahead and do it, is never okay. Never, ever, ever. And what we see in the history of Israel, as we reach the end of their Old Testament history, we see a cycle of sin in them from the beginning. God draws them to Himself. They rejoice in God, then they sin and fall away. God draws them to Himself, and they rejoice in God, and then they sin and fall away. And you see it from Genesis to Nehemiah. And listen to me. What I would say in that is, recognize that cycle in your life. You do the same thing. I do the same thing. We do the same thing. God draws us to Himself. Maybe we have a nice Sunday morning and we're like, God, I just thank You. I'm, I'm going to do better. I love You. I feel Your nearness, God, and I treasure it and I want to preserve that. A couple weeks later, not so much. Because we've chosen sin. We've neglected the spiritual disciplines. We've neglected the assembling of ourselves together. We've gotten fat and sassy. It's not funny, Rodney. I'm just playing. <laughs> this is what we do, unfortunately. And it's not okay. But this is what I would want you to hear this morning. God knows our tendency. And He has made a provision. Look at these, these next three scriptures that I'm going to use in this application point. Make me want to sing for joy. And I mean that. Psalm 103, 14 through 18. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. He knows our frame. He knows that we're just dust. And He keeps His covenant even when we don't. This scripture doesn't say that. We'll see that in the New Testament for sure. When we are faithless, He remains faithful. Let me tell you what. I have comforted and strengthened myself with 103.14 for the last two weeks. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Praise God. He knows that I am dust. And Paul would say, I would much more than rather boast about my weakness. Because when I'm weak, then He is strong. He knows our frame. He knows our tendency to sin. He knows our tendency to intermarry and to break the Sabbath and to not provide for the temple. He knows this. And He's made a provision and His love never fails. Listen to this. Proverbs 24, 16. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again. You cannot out the grace of God. You can't do it. And you shouldn't want to try. But when you think that you are in the spiritual penalty box and God's evaluating whether or not He's going to keep you around, that is not happening. He knows your frame. He knows that you are but dust. And you may fall seven times, but you will rise again. Look at Matt. This is a great 
passage, Micah 7, 8 and 9. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. Woo! I'm going to read that again. And I may shout again when I get done. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes which is the death of your sin. Which is the death of the old man. And every week I come and remind myself, it's still enough. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Your sin is not okay. But it is dealt with. And we have a natural cycle of sin. But we should deal with it, right? So there's a need for confrontation. I would ask you guys, I would plead with you guys, if you see me walking in sin, confront me. And I would hope that you would want that same invitation in your life. If I see you walking in sin, I should confront you. I'm not going to pull your hair. Steve? I'm not pulling anybody's hair, okay? Notice we're all bald, right? I look around, these guys are all like bald. We're like, yeah, you ain't pulling my hair, joker. Yeah, maybe we've already, you know, I need more. That's why I'm growing a beard. Pull that one. Listen to me. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If I love you enough to confront you in your sin... You should know that those are faithful wounds. And I'm not doing it to be mean. You're not doing it to be mean to me. You're doing it to restore me. And if we're going to be faithful in our communal, corporate life, there must be a confrontation of sin in our lives to each other. And if you buck up and get mad, well, I just won't be there because... That's the wrong attitude to have. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Listen, Nehemiah was like a tornado coming back from Susa. Throwing furniture, pulling hair, cursing, beating, confronting. And then he says, remember me for good, God. It's like Jesus, right? And they came to Jerusalem. And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Does that sound familiar? It's just like what Nehemiah did. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's confrontation. Do not smile and wink and dismiss your brother and sister's sin. 
And don't be complicit with it and go along with it. Confront it and say, this is sin and the Lord is not pleased. We don't talk like that anymore. Because we're all about tolerance. We're all about going along to get along. And you should be doing what you feel like you, you do you. You just be you and be the best you you can be. Jesus says, die to yourself. We need to call each other to death to ourselves. That's how we need to talk. We need confrontation for the sins in our lives. I'm running over. Let me finish. Finally, how do we deal with sin? We have a cycle of sin. Somebody confronts us. How are we going to cast this sin out? I would ask you to set your eyes on a reward. Nehemiah did it right. Bless me. Remember me, O God, for the good that I'm doing. There is an expulsive power in finding a greater affection. You will not kick sin out until you don't like it anymore. And you're not going to not like it until you find something that you like better. What are we seeing here? In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. More than all comforts, Jesus is better. Until Jesus is better to you than your sin, you're never going to be confronted and get rid of this cycle of sin. But when you set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and He becomes everything you need and everything you want, sin starts to fall away. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's what I'm calling us to. Look at Jesus! Look at Jesus and say, that's better than anything the world has to offer. When sin tempts me, I say, I want Jesus. I don't want sin. I want sin, but I don't want it more than I want Jesus. Because here's the thing, you do want sin. You have a cycle of sin. And even when you're confronted, you're like, yeah, but. And you're by yourself and you click that mouse. Or you're on the phone and you say that thing that you know you shouldn't say. Why? Because it's better to you than Jesus is. And until Jesus is better, you're going to continue to do it. Matthew 6, 19-21 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. Jesus Christ should be your treasure. It says that in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Set your eyes, set your mind, set your heart, set your life upon the person of Jesus. And sin will not have the pull that it has in your life right now. When He is your reward, when you're looking for future reward in Him, from Him, through Him, you can say no to the temptations and the sins now because you want what's up there more than what you want what's down here. We are rewards-based people. The Bible is a rewards-based book. Read Revelation. 
God's passing out rewards in the end times. Based on what? Based on the deeds that we've done here. Look to Jesus. Set your affections on Him and the treasures that He will give you when you see Him face to face. Set your minds on things above where Christ is, where He is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. That is the only thing that will break the cycle of sin in your life. Let's pray. God, we have learned much from Nehemiah. We have seen much in his example. We have seen ourselves so much in the lives of the Jews of his time. God, I would ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to confront us in our sin. Help us to confront each other in love. Help us to see our cycle of sin and help us to break it by the power of a greater affection in the person of Jesus. And may you do great things in us, through us, and for us as a result of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and receive a benediction. Thank you for your patience this morning. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can. Or I will pull out your hair. <laughs>